See, it's important to understand that even though Christ's full reign as king during the millennial kingdom has not yet taken place, it didn't take place in the days of our Lord's ministry, it has not taken place yet, there is a sense in which his kingdom had, at his first coming, come to earth as he reigned over those who followed him. Understand this, wherever the king is present, that's where the kingdom is. That's where the kingdom is. There is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom now, wherever Christ reigns. If he reigns in your heart, you can say the kingdom has come. But that doesn't mean the fullness of the kingdom has come. There's still a physical aspect of that. And that's precisely what Jesus is talking about. The people should have understood that the king was in their midst because he was demonstrating kingdom power in healing people and casting out Demons. So it's absolutely correct when Jesus said, "Then God, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. The miracles indicated that. verse-by-verse broadcast, Pastor Steve referred us to Isaiah chapter 35, where Isaiah highlighted the miracles that the Messiah would do when he came. The miracles Jesus did were done in order to authenticate him as the king. The miracles Jesus did were done in order to authenticate him as king by giving the Jewish people a taste, or shall we say a demonstration of kingdom power, which would be in force during his millennial reign. Seeing Jesus do these miracles, they should have been convinced that he was their Messiah, their King. The miracles were given to the Jewish people as demonstration of their King's sovereign power, and they indicated that the Kingdom of God was in their midst because their King was in their midst. It all seems so obvious to us today. However, I sometimes wonder how I would have reacted if I'd been living in Israel at that time. Today we are going to continue with our series, Words Have Meaning, and so here is our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. In all fairness, we should say, and I think this helps to understand and bring some things together, that the prophecy that Isaiah gave in chapter 35 is really not about Christ's first coming. It's about his second coming. When he comes again to judge the nations of the world, he will establish his physical kingdom on earth for a thousand years. We refer to that as the millennial reign of Christ. There is a coming future kingdom in which Jesus will reign literally and physically from this earth in Jerusalem. He will rule the nations of the world. That's specifically what Isaiah is referring to. That's why there will be streams in the desert. The desert does not have streams. I was just there about a year ago. There are no streams in the desert unless they are kind of an oasis. But when he comes, he will perform also those miracles. Now watch this. When Jesus came the first time, the miracles that he did were done in order to authenticate him as the king by giving, watch this, Israel, the Jewish people, a taste and a demonstration of kingdom power which would be in full force during his millennial reign. They just got a taste of it, just a little bit of of a taste. And seeing him do these miracles, 
they should have been convinced that he was their Messiah king, because that's what the Bible says. In other words, these miracles uh, that were given to the Jewish people were given as demonstration of their king's sovereign power, and they indicated that the kingdom of God was in their midst because their king was in their midst. See, it's important to understand that even though Christ's full reign as king during the millennial kingdom has not yet taken place, it didn't take place in the days of our Lord's ministry, it has not taken place yet, there is a sense in which his kingdom had, at his first coming, come to earth as he reigned over those who followed him. Understand this, wherever the king is present, that's where the kingdom is. That's where the kingdom is. There is a spiritual aspect of the kingdom now, wherever Christ reigns. If he reigns in your heart, you can say the kingdom has come. But that doesn't mean the fullness of the kingdom has come. There's still a physical aspect of that. And that's precisely what Jesus is talking about. The people should have understood that the king was in their midst because he was demonstrating kingdom power in healing people and casting out demons. So it's absolutely correct when Jesus said, "Then God, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. The miracles indicated that. And that's precisely why the crowd of people who observed him casting out a demon, they said, could this possibly be the Messiah? Could this be David's son? They understood the implications of the miracles. That's why they were asking that question. But the Pharisees insisted that Christ's miracles were not the action of God's king, but the work of Satan's agents. And so Jesus proceeds to give the people some very tangible evidence to convince them that he is the true king by informing them about his obvious power and authority over Satan and his evil kingdom. Notice verse 29, a very, very interesting story that Jesus gave. He said, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? With these two sentences, very brief sentences, Jesus gave a little story. Really, we could call it a mini parable. It's just a small, tiny parable in order to illustrate an obvious truth. Folks, this is not very difficult. You'll see when we go through this. This is very, very easy to understand. And that truth being that his miracles demonstrated that he's more powerful than Satan. It doesn't work for Satan. He's more powerful than Satan. He's the king over Satan. Now, in this story, the Lord speaks of a strong man. A strong man who owns a house, and that house contains some very valuable goods inside. It contains property. That's what he's talking about. So you have a strong man, owns a house. In that house, he has valuable property. Any burglar who'd be successful in robbing the strong man in his house must obviously first overpower him. Because there's no there's no strong man who's going to say, take whatever you want to a robber. He's going to say, you want this? You have to come through me first. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. So any burglar who'd be successful in robbing the strong man's house must first overpower him before he can carry off his property. That just makes sense. Now, in this parable, who is the strong man? The strong man in this parable is the devil, you Satan. And the valuable goods that are in Satan's house, they are the men and women that the devil has taken prisoner through demon possession. They belong to him. He's They are his. Likewise, in this story, Jesus is the robber. He's the thief. He's the burglar who has broken into Satan's house 
overpowered him and carried off those who had been held captive by the devil by casting demons out of them. That's the story. So I told you, it's not, it's not deep. It's not hard to understand. But there's a point to it. And, and we'll, we'll get in, in several months, we will get to parables. And once we get to a parable, you'll see the way to interpret a parable is not to try, as we say, make it stand on all fours and, and become real nitpicky on every detail of the parable. They generally have a major point. If you can figure out the major point, you get the the thought of the parable. And the major point of this parable is to say to the Pharisees and to the crowd of undecided people, isn't it obvious that I'm the true king who has the power to bind Satan and his evil demons? Haven't my miracles, especially the casting out of demons, sufficiently demonstrated my power and authority over the devil? On numerous occasions I have entered his house, bound him, and carried off his property of men and women. If after seeing all the evidence for me being the king, you still don't believe that I'm the Messiah, then you are ignoring the obvious and clear evidence. Folks, that is precisely what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, here's the evidence. You've seen it, that I'm more powerful than Satan. I bind him, I tie him up, I loose men and women who've been his property. That's an important truth that everyone who is familiar with Christ but still unconverted needs to take to heart. Let me explain why. Because like that crowd of Jewish people, you too, if you do not know Christ, I want you to realize you have sufficient evidence to believe that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. You may have never witnessed him casting out a demon from someone, but you have certainly seen clear demonstrations of his power over Satan. You say, well, how, how is that? I've never even seen him physically. How have I seen demonstrations of his power over Satan? Because you know, if you do know Christians whose lives have been transformed by Christ, then you have seen Jesus set them free from the grip of darkness. If you know any believer, and most of us do, if you're not a, if you're not a Christian but you know someone who's been saved, you have seen the evidence of God's power to transform a life for his glory. Every believer in Christ is a living demonstration of Christ's power over Satan. Listen to what the apostle Paul writes about Christ's power to free a soul from Satan's grip. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Just want you to see this has happened to everyone who's ever become a Christian. And those who observe our lives are observing Christ's power over Satan. Listen to what Paul said, starting with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the way we were before conversion. We were dead, alive physically, but dead to God in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul is saying you walk like everybody else. There was nothing special about you. You were not a cut above anyone else. You walked this way, just like all unconverted people walk among them. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He's telling us you did whatever you wanted to do. Whatever your flesh dictated, you did it. You unwittingly followed Satan. You may not have even believed that there was a personal devil, but you followed him and like everybody else, you were children of wrath, set against God, following the prince of the power of the air. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Even when we were dead, even when we were rebels against God, Paul said, God made you alive. He regenerated you. He did that work of grace in your life. He gave you a new nature. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, so that the whole universe would see and know that God has been gracious to us. For by grace, Paul says, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one would, would boast. He's saying that God has done it this way so that he would receive the glory. None of us will boast about it. And then he concludes in verse 10 with this marvelous verse. Remember, he started off by telling us what our works were. We walked according to the dictates of our flesh. But now he tells us, for we are his workmanship. Literally, that means we're his poem. We're his work. We're his poem. We're his, his work of art on a canvas. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now listen to what Paul is saying. From living in the lusts of our flesh because we were once unwitting followers of Satan to now walking in good and godly works because of God's mercy and grace in our lives, Paul says that's the living proof that Christ, as we go back to what Jesus said, that's the living proof that Christ has bound Satan and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light. Folks, that's, that's what it's about. So, so listen, if you, if you have ever seen the evidence of Christ transforming power in the life of a believer, don't ignore it as if it's of little consequence. Oh, I know somebody who's really changed. I'm glad for them, but, but it's not for me. That's often what unbelievers say. I'm happy for you. Right? Haven't you heard that? I'm so glad this works in your life. That's living proof of the power of God. The power of Christ over Satan. So don't ignore it. But that's precisely what the Pharisees did. They thought it was of little consequence. They they did ignore it. They saw all kinds of demonstrations that Jesus was stronger than Satan. And therefore he was the obvious Messiah and King of Israel. But every time they witnessed a demon being cast out of an individual, they just ignored it. Yet that was a display of Christ's power over the kingdom of darkness. That was the witness of the Holy Spirit to them that this man is more than a man. That this man is your king. That this man is God in flesh. Displaying Christ's power over the kingdom of darkness. But they chose to ignore the obvious evidence and witness of the Spirit. And instead they chose to reject Jesus as King and Messiah. Which, watch this, with such a hardness of heart that they actually convinced themselves that he was satanic. And that's why Jesus went on to tell them of the tragic 
consequence of their decision as he proceeded to give the Pharisees still one more, a final and fourth argument to prove that their accusation against him was utterly false. Remember, first he told them their accusation was illogical, which it was. Second, he told them that their accusation was inconsistent with their own beliefs, which it was. Third, he told them that their accusation ignored the evidence that he was king, and it it did. And now he gives them a fourth argument to prove that their accusation against him was false. He tells them their accusation is impossible to forgive. Impossible to forgive. Verse 30, he said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In light of their wicked charge against him, Jesus told the Pharisees, it's very interesting, he told them something that they already knew. He told them that if they were not with him, meaning that they were not following him as Messiah, they were against him. That's very clear. Likewise, if they were not gathering lost souls to him, then they were involved in scattering or driving people away from him. And that was certainly true as well. Now, why would the Lord make such a statement? I mean, it was obvious. They knew this. He who is not with me is against me. Pharisees knew that they were against him. They were so against him, they called him Beelzebub. You can't be any more against him than that. So why would Jesus make such an obvious statement to these men who were so against him? Because, as I said before, he may have been looking at them in the eye, but it was not said for their sake. It was said for the sake of the crowd of people who had gathered around listening to this conversation. These people had not yet come to any conclusion about him. And the reason he said it is because he wanted to impress upon this crowd of undecided, unconverted people that no one can remain neutral when it comes to him. What a great truth to understand. See, it is very likely, very likely that there were many in that crowd that day who thought they could be neutral about Christ. You know what? They said, we're not sure. We're not prepared to dogmatically say one way or another if he's the Messiah. We we don't know. He might be, but he might not be. We've seen this miracle, but our leaders say that he's not. He's satanic. You know what? We don't want to get involved. We don't really want to get involved because if you went against, if they went against the Pharisees, do you know the Pharisees had the power as well as other religious leaders to cast you out of the synagogue, to excommunicate you? In that culture, you get put out of the synagogue, you have no life. You have nobody who will deal with you in business. You have no family members who will have anything to do with you. You are an outcast. And so it's very likely that they just said, you know what, we don't want to get involved. We really don't want to get involved. He could be the Messiah, but he might not be. We don't want to disagree with our leaders. We don't want to get involved. We want to stay out of this theological debate. Let the theologians decide this. And Jesus is telling them, you are involved. You cannot stay neutral. It is an impossibility. There is no neutrality concerning Christ. They had to decide if they were going to follow him or be against him. And he wanted them to understand that if they did not follow him, They were choosing to oppose him. They were choosing to oppose him, even, and note this, even if they were not openly hostile towards him, like the Pharisees were. Now, folks, this is extremely significant for us to understand, because there are many people today who are not consciously engaged in opposing Christ. They are not consciously engaged in opposing Christ, but they are still against him. And they need to understand this. Why are they against him? Because whether whether they recognize it or not, 
everyone is either for Christ or against him. There, there is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. Scripture teaches that all non-Christians are rebels against God. They are all his enemies and at war with him. That's what the Bible means by human depravity. This is why people don't like the gospel, because we have to tell them stuff like this. But I want you to see it in Scripture. Romans chapter 5. Nobody is good. Paul's already said that in Romans 3. Nobody is obedient. Now he tells us in Romans chapter 5 and then Romans 8 that we are rebellious enemies of God. That's how we're born into this world. Notice Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies, he means before you were converted, you were enemies. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. He's telling us that everyone who has ever come to faith in Christ and been reconciled was, first of all, an enemy of God. Now, that's a heavy truth. We were all enemies, regardless of a person's nice personality. Maybe they have a tenderness of heart. Maybe they're just, you know, sweet people. They are still enemies of God if they're not converted. All of us were enemies of God. In fact, more than than enemies, we were hostile. Romans chapter 8 and then verse 7. Paul writes, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are unsaved are hostile towards God. You know what that means? That when somebody says to you, I've always loved God, they're not telling you the truth. They've not loved God. Not the God of Scripture. Not the the true God. They may have loved a God they created in their own minds, but not the God of the Bible. And not only that, he tells us not only were we hostile towards God, but we didn't subject ourselves to the law of God. We never obeyed him. We did whatever we wanted to do. And we're not even able to do it before we were saved. Even if we wanted to, we're not able to do it. We don't have the power to do it and we don't want to do it anyway. You see, it's only when we come to Christ for salvation are we reconciled to God and we become his friend. Otherwise, folks, every unsaved person is at war with God, living in rebellion to his standards, rebellion to his commands, walking after the lusts of their own flesh. And that's why Jesus that day said to the crowd, you cannot remain neutral towards me. Either you must follow me in submission to my authority as your Lord and King, or you remain against me a hostile sinner bent on following the dictates of your own fleshly desires. And if those in the crowd of undecided, unconverted people who witness Christ casting out a demon from that man, if they refuse to become his followers, then not only would they still be opposed to him, but they would also be in danger of ending up like those openly hostile Pharisees who, watch this, in their rejection of Christ had put themselves in the place of never being able to experience God's forgiveness. That's the great danger. Perhaps you have talked with someone about Jesus and they have declared they are neutral, neither for him nor against him. As we can see in the Bible, there is no neutrality concerning Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus wanted the crowd to understand that fact. If they did not follow him, 
They were choosing to oppose him, even if they were not openly hostile towards him, like the Pharisees were. Today, there are many people who are not consciously engaged in opposing Christ, but they're still against him, and they need to understand this. There is no middle ground. I trust you have been blessed with what you have heard so far in this series, Words Have Meaning, here on Verse by Verse. If so, please tell a friend about the Verse by Verse broadcast and encourage them to tune in to this fine station. In the meantime, I hope you can join us for the next Verse by Verse broadcast with Pastor Steve Kreloff.